Repentance is a biblical word. Not necessarily a popular word, but a biblical word. As the famous preacher Billy Graham once said, the Bible commands it, our wickedness demands it, justice requires it, Christ preached it, and God expects it. The divine, unalterable edict from Acts 17 that God commands all men everywhere to repent. From a 2006 article, True Repentance, Real Change, Graham goes on to say, but this theme proclaimed so emphatically in the Bible by prophets and apostles is scarcely mentioned by contemporary preachers. The clear trumpet blast calling men and women everywhere to repent is conspicuously absent from the modern pulpit. Instead, we preach the dignity of humanity rather than our depravity. We declare our goodness rather than our wickedness. We vindicate ourselves rather than confess our guilt. And we make ourselves, despite all our inherent sin and evil, like little angels of perfection with halos over our heads, harps in our hands, and wings on our shoulders. Therefore, gone is the mourner's bench, gone are the tear-stained cheeks of godly sorrow, and gone is the joy of heaven over those who have wandered returning home to the Father's house. Why? Because none of us wants to accept blame for our sin. But here's the problem, Graham says. Either the Bible is wrong or we're wrong. But when we look at the fruit of this current generation, we must be convinced for the desperate need to blow a loud blast again on the trumpet of biblical repentance. Graham wrote those words in 2006, so just 16 years ago. But if it was true back then, how much more is it true today? But before I go on, I want to encourage you not to just rip into our current culture or the next generation, but instead to understand that there has always been and there will always be a need to blow a loud blast on the trumpet of biblical repentance. You know, I remember reading an article about Egyptian dynasties where essentially they translated hieroglyphics off the wall of some tomb and they interpreted them to be saying that they too were terrified of the direction in which the next generation was going. Meaning, every generation assumes that the next generation is headed to hell in a handbasket. When in reality, every generation, since Adam and Eve, needs a clear call for biblical repentance. The Bible commands it. Our wickedness demands it. Justice requires it. Christ preached it. And God expects it. The divine unalterable edict from Acts 17 that God commands all men everywhere to repent. So surely... In our 2022 Resolved Sermon series, Resolved to do all things for the glory of God, we must include the need to be resolved to walk in ongoing repentance. And when I say that, I'm not talking about a once and done kind of repentance, like repent and move on and be done with that already. But instead, repentance as a way of life. Now allow me to define repentance. 
Repentance is the process of turning away from sin and turning towards Christ. So 180 degree change in direction. I think Isaiah 55 says it best. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Here's repentance. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So repentance is turning from sin and turning to God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that repentance is not penance. So it's not the voluntary suffering of punishment to try and make up for your sin. And it's certainly not just feeling badly about your sin. Getting caught with your hand in the cookie jar. So getting busted and simply feeling guilt and shame. That's not repentance. And repentance is not self-condemnation. It's not hating yourself for your sinfulness. But instead, repentance is hating your sin, hating your false ways, your vain thoughts, your evil passions, your wicked words, lying, stealing, cheating, sexual immorality, and as a result, turning to God for the forgiveness of sins that is only found in Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And then, as a result, living a life that continues to do so. So not once and done, but the ongoing process of turning from sin and walking in righteousness, which is the consistent message of the Bible. Just like Billy Graham said, emphatically proclaimed by all the prophets and apostles, and yet so often scarcely mentioned by contemporary preachers. But I don't want to assume that you know that. So let's look at how consistent this message is in the New Testament. Romans 2.4 says that it's the kindness of God that leads a person to repentance. And yet God uses messengers to constantly proclaim it. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, page 808. My outline is right there in your bulletin, resolve to walk in repentance, need for repentance, heart for repentance, ongoing work of repentance. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus, and yet he's totally consistent with the Old Testament prophets because he's preaching the need to repent, to turn from your sin, to put your faith in God. And John's absolutely clear that it's not a once-and-done kind of thing, but a lifelong turning from sin, which is why he says to the religious leaders, right, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, look at verse 7, look at what he says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, I don't give a rip if you're a religious leader or not. If your lives aren't marked by the fruit of repentance, 
marked by the fruit of turning from sin and walking in righteousness, then what can they expect according to John the Baptist? The wrath of God to come. Jesus says the same thing. Flip forward to Mark 4. I'm sorry, Mark. Matthew 4, verse 17. One page. Matthew 4, verse 17. Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message as John the Baptist, with the same expectation of a life marked by the fruit of repentance. In fact, flip forward, Matthew chapter 7. Here's his expectation. Matthew 7, 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How will you know them? Look at verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruit. Verse 18. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Therefore, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Then we get this terrifying statement, don't we? Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does. Notice the does. But the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do many mighty works? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Who, who has to depart? The workers of lawlessness. So Jesus is saying the exact same thing as John the Baptist. That true repentance is not just a once and done, God, I'm so sorry for that. But an ongoing process of consistently turning from your sin and walking in righteousness. So an ongoing progress in your obedience to God which results in a growing transformation. Which, by the way, is the exact same message Peter proclaimed. If you would, flip forward to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, page 910. As you know, Peter preaches this rip-roaring sermon at Pentecost, which ends in verse 36, when he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? How does Peter respond? Peter says, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the exact same message to repent. And, and please don't be confused by the command to be baptized as if baptism is a work that someone earns that has to do to earn their forgiveness of sins or earn the gift of the Holy Spirit. No, re repentance is always linked with true faith in the Lord Jesus. In fact, there is no repentance without faith and no faith without repentance. They're opposite sides of the same coin. 
So it's a faithful repentance and a repentant faith. And when you've put your faith in Christ, you're promised the forgiveness of sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the hope of eternal life. And then, as a result of your faith, you get baptized, identifying yourself with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And look at these people's transformed lives. Verse 41 says, All those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And did they just go back to life as normal? No. Their lives were gloriously different. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They weren't doing that beforehand. Now they're devoted to it. Verse 45 says, They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Do you see what I'm saying? Repentance is not just a once and done. Father, forgive me for I have sinned. And you move on as if nothing's changed in your life. No. The Bible repeatedly teaches that instead our lives must be marked by repentance, that we must continually identify sin in our lives, turn from it, and walk in obedience. I mean, do you really think that it was so easy for these new believers to just give up their stuff for the good of others? Like that was no big deal, right? No big deal. It's just stuff. Just, just post it on eBay or Craigslist or, or Facebook Marketplace. No big deal. No. These are new believers. They were just as selfish and just as materialistic as you and I. And if you don't believe that, just look at Acts chapter 5 with Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. What, what, what did they do? I'm not going to point to it. You know what happened there, right? What did they do? They lied to God. And how does that go for them? Not well. Why did they lie? Because they wanted their stuff, right? They're no different than us. They're just as selfish, just as materialistic. My point is that repentance looks like something. It looks like a lifelong process of putting off sin and putting on godliness, not perfectly, but progressively. And that whole ongoing process is empowered and enabled by the Spirit. If you would, go ahead and flip forward to Romans 6. Romans chapter 6, page 942. Look at what Paul says. Verse 1. Everybody's still turning. Come on, people. Flip faster. <laughs> I'm resolved to walk patiently in 2022. <laughs> Romans chapter 6. Everybody there. Romans 6, verse 1. Look at what Paul says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Meaning, is it okay to profess faith in Christ and then continue in unrepentant sin? What's Paul's answer? By no means. May it never be. Why? Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What's Paul saying? He's saying that when you put your faith in Christ, you become a new creature with a new identity and new affections, new desires. And because you've identified yourself with Christ, you're no longer mastered by your old self, by sin. But now you're alive to God. And you're empowered by the Spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, walking in newness of life. So you have power now over sin. Sin can no longer say to you, jump, and you respond by saying, how high? By the way, that's why Paul moves from the indicative in verses 1 to 11 to the imperative, right? Verses 1 to 11, this is who you are, that's the indicative, to the imperative, that's in verses 12 to 14, this is what you should do, this is how you should live. Right? Verses 1 to 11, Paul says that if you're in Christ, you're a new creature in Christ with power over sin. That's who you are. Therefore, because that's who you are, he says in verse 12, therefore, because your identity is in Christ, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But instead... Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. What's my point? I have one point. My point is, there is a desperate need for us to have a right understanding of repentance. Because repentance means you're actually turning from sin and you're actually walking in newness of life. You're actually putting off the old self and you're walking in the new self that is marked by righteousness. So you're actually making progress. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Not your understanding of repentance. Biblical repentance. Turning from sin. Walking in righteousness. Obvious application. Have you truly repented of your sin? Meaning you're not just feeling badly about getting caught. Paul calls that worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly sorrow produces a repentance, a biblical repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly sorrow produces death. Have you truly repented of your sin? And do you see how critical that question is? 
Because worldly sorrow produces death. Meaning you're not right with God. You don't go to heaven when you die. You don't experience fullness of joy or pleasures forevermore. Instead, eternal suffering. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whereas godly sorrow produces a repentance. So, so real change in your life that leads to salvation without regret. See, I, I think this is something we want to make sure that we understand. There's obviously, number one, a need for repentance that requires, number two, a heart of repentance. And the best way I know of to understand the the heart of repentance is to look at an example. So if you would, go ahead and flip back to Psalm 51, page 474. I will patiently wait. All right, let's get started. I'm just joking. Psalm 51. The first thing you're going to see when you get to Psalm 51, even before verse 1, is the heading. Look at the heading. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, what happened with Bathsheba is pretty well known, but let me quickly remind you, all recorded in 2 Samuel 11 if you want to read it later today. 2 Samuel 11 verse 2 says it all happened late one afternoon. David rose from his couch and went walking on the roof of the palace. And from there, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman who was Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he sent messengers, and he took her. And she came to him, and he laid with her. Then she returned to her house, and she conceived, and she sent word to David, telling him, I'm pregnant. How does David respond? Well, he tries to cover up his sin by bringing her husband home from battle. The thought was Uriah will come home and immediately go down and sleep with his wife. So the baby would appear to be Uriah's child and not David's child. But Uriah was too noble to go into his wife while his comrades were still at war. So he sleeps at King David's door. And David's first attempt at covering his sin fails. What does he do? Second attempt. He sends Uriah back to the battle with a letter to his commanding officer to place him in the thick of the fight, and then back off. Put him on the front lines, and then leave him there, essentially to have him murdered. That plan was successful. So when Bathsheba heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented, And when the morning was over, David sent word, brought her into his house, and quickly married her. Again, all to cover the wickedness of his own sin. Chapter 11 ends by saying, this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So in 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends Nathan, the prophet, to rebuke David. 
And he does so by telling him a parable. So a story about a rich man with many lambs who takes the one single beloved lamb of a poor man to entertain his guests. So the the rich man who has many lambs doesn't take of his own lambs. He takes the one lamb from the poor man in order to entertain his guests. Hearing the story, David is outraged at the rich man. Can't believe it. And he demands that the rich man die and restore the lamb fourfold. And Nathan, with those famous words, says to David, Thou art the man. That's you, David. And of course, David responds, verse 13, and he acknowledges, I have sinned against the Lord. So what we have in Psalm 51 is the outworking of that confession. Essentially a a demonstration, an example of his heart of repentance, which serves for us this morning as a model to follow, to make sure that we have godly sorrow and true repentance that leads to salvation without regret rather than worldly sorrow that produces death. So let's learn from Psalm 51 that we too might have a heart of repentance. Follow along as I read Psalm 51. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, notice, then, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. First thing I want you to observe is that David understands the seriousness of his sin. 
Notice how he uses three different words in order to describe the wickedness of his behavior. Starting in verse 1, blot out my transgression, wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. So three different words, all talking about the wickedness of his own heart. And he uses all of them demonstrating the comprehensive nature of his problem. That he's a wicked sinner. And his sin, verse 3, is ever before God. Meaning he can't get away from it. Right? right? The, the video just keeps playing in his mind's eye over and over and over again. And he can't stop it. Notice the pronouns. My transgression. My iniquity. My sin. He's not blaming God like Adam did in the garden, this woman who you gave me. And he's not blaming someone else like Eve saying the serpent deceived me. There's no blame shifting. It's not God's fault. And it's not the devil who made me do it. Right? David instead says, it's my sin. It's my iniquity. It's, it's my transgression. I did it. It's my fault. And David knows that he sinned first and foremost against God. That's why he says in verse 4, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now this doesn't mean that he didn't sin against Bathsheba when he slept with her or against Uriah when he took his wife, lied to him and then had him killed or against Uriah's family or Bathsheba's family or even against the nation of Israel for being a lazy, wicked, bad example king. Those are all sins. But instead what verse 4 means is that what makes sin, sin, is that it's first and foremost against God. So yes, hurting people is wrong and wicked, but the horror of sin is that it's against a holy God. God created us. And God commands us. So when we sin, we sin first and foremost against God. God. And because God is perfect, verse 4, he is justified when he speaks and he is blameless when he judges. So if God decided to judge David right here, cast him into hell, weeping and gnashing of teeth, he would have been perfectly justified to do so. And David knows God wants more than some sort of superficial cleanup job or apology on the outside. He doesn't want a Pharisee, a whitewashed tomb that is filled with dead man's bones. That's why he says, verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So David's not just confessing the sin of adultery, but lust. And not just murder, but hatred. Not just lying, but a heart that is black with sin rather than white with righteous desires, motives, and actions. God is vindicated in his judgment, and David is condemned. 
Already, do you see how key this is to repentance? Because there's no blame shifting. There's no excuses. There's no negotiations. He's not negotiating with God. There's no self-justification. There's none of that. Think about that with me. Do you see how radically different that is? Gloriously different than the world in which we live? We make self-justification an art. Blame shifting is like a hobby for us. Right? You, you, you don't see any of that here. David owns his sin. David even owns his sin nature. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not using that to diminish his guilt, but instead saying that if, if God does not rescue me, I'll do more and more and more evil, because that's who I am inherently. What does David do? He turns to God for help. So again, repentance starts with confessing the seriousness of your sin and then turning to God for help. And you see it all over Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Do you see how David is pleading for God's mercy and God's love? So he's not pleading for God's justice or God's law. That wouldn't go well for him, would it? He pleads for mercy. He pleads for grace. He pleads for compassion. If he appealed to God's law and God's justice, he'd be immediately condemned. What he needs is God's mercy. He certainly can't appeal to his own merit or his own achievements. There's nothing in David that can bring himself before a holy God. He has no choice but to cry out for the only thing that can save him. God's grace. God's mercy. God's love. God's compassion. Now what's so awesome here is that you could easily ask the question, how in the world does David know to cry out to God? And I believe the answer is seen in the language that David uses because he references the steadfast love of the Lord. So, so the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God, which immediately points us all the way back to Genesis 15 where God was with Abraham and split those animals in two. Do you remember that covenant-keeping ceremony? God alone passes through the animals, in summary, declaring that if he fails to keep his promises, he wishes to be like one of those sacrificed animals. But if Abraham or Abraham's seed, namely in this context, David fails to keep his promises, then God himself, not Abraham, not David, will be like one of those sacrificed animals. So David, even here, Psalm 51, he understands the good news of the gospel. 
That God promised to sacrifice himself. The sacrificial lamb on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring David back. That he might restore to David the relationship between him and God. So David's only hope is to cry out to God for help. So he confesses the seriousness of his sin. He turns to God for help. And then he prays. He prays for cleansing and he prays for restoration. Verse 7. David prays, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Notice how these are all calling on God to do something. Meaning, David knows he cannot purge himself. He cannot make himself clean or white or spotless or blot out his own iniquities. Only God can do that. And there's a confidence here, isn't there, in David's prayers. He says, if you clean me, O God, I'll be clean. If you wash me, O Lord, I'll be whiter than snow. If you purify me, I'll be pure. David knows he can't just pull himself up by the bootstraps. Any form of works-based righteousness would be an utter waste of time. Because this kind of cleansing, this kind of purification, this kind of heart transformation can only come from God. Reminds you of Ezekiel 36, doesn't it? That the, the new covenant language of God given to us all the way back in Ezekiel 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove, listen to this spiritual surgery, right? I will remove the heart of stone and I will give you a heart a flesh, a God-given clean heart, a God-given right spirit. What's amazing in all of this is that David never once prays directly about his sexual sin. I mean, isn't that what started this whole mess in the first place? And yet, that's not what he prays about. Instead, he asks, verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let me let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and upholding me with a willing spirit. He's asking for restoration. He's asking for reconciliation. He's pleading for forgiveness. And the restored joy of his salvation, which is better than anything that can be given to him on earth, that's what he's delighting in. That's what means more to him than anything. I mean, do you understand that when we come to God like this, with this kind of posture, with this kind of pouring out of our hearts in confession and repentance, owning our sin, not blame shifting to other people, not blame shifting to God, right? We, we own our sin and we cry out to God for mercy. He stands willing, ready, eager to forgive because that's who he is. Just like our call to worship, steadfast love of the Lord, Psalm 103, 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Why does he do that? Psalm 103. Because the Lord is merciful and kind. He's gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is what? His steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. David knows that. David experiences that. So D, David knows the joy of this kind of ongoing repentance. Which doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for sin. As many of you know, the baby conceived between David and Bathsheba actually dies. The baby died. Clearly as a consequence of David's sin. Sin brings with it terrible, horrific, life-destroying consequences. But repentance always, ultimately, brings joy. Great joy. In fact, notice the transition between verses 12 and 13. I think this is so helpful. After his confession, his turning to God, and his prayer for restoration, David says, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, as a result, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So let me just ask, do you want to have a life that matters? Do you want to live in such a way that draws people to God? Do you want to teach transgressors the way of the Lord so that they'll be converted? Do you want to, to live out this salvation in a way that causes other people to be saved so that they too will go to heaven? Well, then you have to be resolved to walk in ongoing repentance, right? Confessing, turning, praying, and knowing the ongoing joy of your own sin-forgiven, joy-restoring, God-glorifying repentance, which naturally, I'm suggesting, naturally mobilizes you to radical gospel-driven evangelism. Reminds you of Isaiah 6, doesn't it? Where Isaiah stands before the holiness of God, right? He's, he's in the temple with God, holy, holy, holy. And he confesses the seriousness of his own sin. He says, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Then the seraphim takes the coal, touches his lips and says, your guilt is gone and your sin is atoned for. Then what does Isaiah say? He says, here I am, Lord. Send me. Don't you see David saying the same thing? Here I am, Lord. Send me. 
Verse 14, deliver me from my guiltiness, O God, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praises forever. Make the connection. David's not content to just be forgiven, to just be cleansed, to just be washed, purified, reconciled, and restored. He's not content to just be joyful in God by himself. Instead, David won't be content until his broken life serves for the healing of others. Just like Isaiah. David says, here I am, Lord, send me. And how does he go? Is this a once and done? Does he forget what happened to him? No. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Which means David was resolved to walk in ongoing repentance. That's his conviction. Based on what God had done in his life. Ongoing repentance, remembering where it is that he came from, remembering the sin that he had committed, remembering the salvation that is him in the Lord Jesus Christ, delighting in that reality. Here I am, Lord, send me. Wakes up the next morning. Here I am, Lord, send me. Wakes up the next morning. Here I am, Lord, send me. Which, by the way, is what we are all called and commanded to do. Every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, the ongoing work of repentance. Both as individuals and as a congregation. Which means we need to be people who are quick to confess the seriousness of our sin. Quick to turn to God. Quick to pray for cleansing. Which as a result, frees us up. It liberates us to know the joy of our ongoing repentance, the joy of our salvation, and to share that with other people. So as we think about application, what does that look like for us? Well, I think it looks like a congregation that is involved in one another's lives. In significant ways. Some of you are getting nervous. I, I, I think we have mastered the ability to be surface level in people's lives. We've mastered that ability. What does that look like for you and me? I, I think it looks like coming up to one another and saying, hey, how's it going? It's good. How are you doing? It's good. Awesome. Let's leave it at that. Right? Rather than saying, you know, it's not going so well. I'm actually struggling. I could really use a friend. Boy, that's super hard for us. But I appreciate Cameron sharing this morning. Because we all recognize if we do that, and people won't think highly of us. So let's just lie to one another so that you think highly of me, but I'm not right with God. Boy, we've really lost our way when we start doing that. 
So I'm suggesting it looks like a congregation where people are involved in other people's lives and not afraid to talk about the reality of sin in each other's lives and to take that seriously. Not sweeping it under the rug, not concealing it, but willing to talk about it openly and honestly and transparently. I mean, that was the point of Billy Graham's message, wasn't it? Pastors who are faithfully preaching repentance from their pulpits and members who are faithfully engaging repentance in their lives because the Bible commands it. Our wickedness demands it. Justice requires it. Christ preached it. And God certainly expects it. Which means we have to have clarity, courage, and conviction to talk about sin with one another openly and honestly. Otherwise, we live as if there's nothing to repent of, which we know is not true. But that means we need to be involved in one another's lives, and we need to know each other well enough so that we can actually see sin issues in one another's lives. And we have to know each other well enough so that we have that kind of relationship. So that we can speak into one another's lives. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about being nosy and judgmental. I'm not talking about picking at each other's preferences but instead being a blessing to one another, truly loving one another and holding one another accountable so that we individually and as a congregation might live for the glory of God. I don't think it's a minor detail that God sent Nathan to confront David on his sin. If you think about it, God could have done that himself. He doesn't do that. Instead, he sent a good brother to tell David a story to help him to understand his sin. That took a ton of courage. David could have just killed him. Uh, I don't need you as a prophet anymore. Gone. It takes courage to speak truth. But it requires us to be involved in one another's life. I don't think it's any mistake that God sent Nathan to confront David. But he didn't just confront him on his sin. Sin has consequences. He told him that. But he also told him that God offers forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a balanced message, isn't it? We do not want to be a people who are looking for sin in each other's lives to call that out and confront them as if you stand before me as if I'm your judge. That's not right. Faithfully confronting sin and faithfully reminding people of grace. In the Lord Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life. I'm suggesting that serves as a wonderful model for us to follow. I also think we need to be reminded that there is great joy in walking in obedience. You know, I think sometimes we forget that. 
Somehow we leave a big crack in the door of our understanding of the gospel and the devil immediately sneaks in telling us there's greater joy in the deceitfulness of sin and we listen. Somehow we start believing that somehow the world has it better than us. Sin makes us stupid. I think that's going to be on my tombstone, actually. (laughs) Sin makes us stupid. The people of God live gloriously different. That's all he really said this whole preaching career. (laughs) Somehow we listen. Why do we do that? Jesus is so clear, isn't he? John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. Ask whatever you wish with regard to godliness. And it will be done for you. You will bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's the ongoing work of repentance in a person's life. Bearing fruit. Proving to be Christ's disciple. Does Jesus stop there? No, he continues. What does he say? He says, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's command and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We need to be reminded daily that there is no greater joy than walking in obedience to God which means there is no greater joy than when you're resolved to walk in ongoing repentance, confessing our sin, turning to God, praying for cleansing, experiencing restoration, and walking in righteousness, which makes total sense, doesn't it? The only time I feel guilt and shame is when I've done something wrong. When I do right, I feel joy. Let that sink in. Because sin makes us stupid, right? I only feel guilt and shame when I do what is wicked and wrong. But when I obey God and I keep his commandments, I find pure joy. Be reminded, beloved, there is pure joy when we walk in obedience to God. Therefore, let us be a congregation that is resolved to walk in ongoing repentance, putting sin to death, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and walking in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, we come and we begin by confessing our sin. Lord, we have done what is evil and wicked in your sight. And we have a habit of doing that on a regular basis. We have a tendency to believe the devil's lies.
We have a tendency to orient ourselves for our own glory. Lord, we have a tendency to forget your promises. I pray that you would do a good work in our minds and in our hearts. That we would be those who are resolved to see our sin. That we would delight to invite other people in to help us evaluate our own hearts so that we could see our transgressions, that we could see our iniquity so that we could put it to death, that we might walk in righteousness. And Father, we recognize that that is only possible because of Christ's finished work on the cross, the gift of your Spirit that empowers us to live gloriously different. But Father, we ask, help us to be a people that lives gloriously different for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.